Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Summer Podcast number 10, the final of our summer podcasts. Today, we are going to be finishing up our multi-podcast look uh, at Twin Peaks, David Lynch's and Mark Frost's Twin Peaks, 45 hours when you add it all together. And today we are talking about uh, the rest of Twin Peaks, The Return, parts 9 through 18. And that will conclude for now, although I think Twin Peaks is so incredible you could talk about it. I could talk about it forever, but we're going to keep it focused today. We're also reposting Secret Movie Club Podcast 115, which we launched a year ago, uh, August 4th, 2022, right around the time of uh, Top Gun Maverick being huge. And it was just devoted to Tom Cruise. It was one of the rare podcasts where rather than focusing on a director or a movie or a genre, which is what we tend to do, uh, Connor and I were talking, and I think he and I are both fascinated by Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise in some ways, is one of the last movie stars. He's a consummate professional from uh, everything that you hear on the set. And yet his personal life, uh, at least for me, I don't want to speak for the other people on the podcast, is also endlessly befuddling and and, uh, a mystery. Uh, By the time that you hear this, uh, we will be showing Dogville, Lars von Trier's Dogville tonight, Friday, September 29th at 7.30 p.m. at the Secret Movie Club Theater. I am a huge fan of Lars von Trier. That's no mystery to anyone who's been listening to this podcast. As complicated a guy as Lars von Trier is, he is one of the few filmmakers left who, in my opinion, like David Lynch, every time they make a movie, they are swinging for the fences. If you've never seen Dogville, it's a crazy experiment. Uh, It's all shot on a near bare soundstage. Uh, the actors have to carry the story because the the town is just tape. Our next showing, uh, our Halloweenathon kicks off next Wednesday, October 4th at 7.30 p.m. We're showing Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness on 35mm, a.k.a. Evil Dead 3. Uh, a really fun, uh, the most comedic of the three, uh, with some of the, the best lines and often the one that's not seen by a lot of people. So if you want to see Evil Dead 3 on 35 Army of Darkness, join us next Wednesday. Next Friday, uh, I'm jumping, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but next Friday, we are doing Pedro Almodovar's The Skin I Live In on 35mm. This is one of my favorite Almodovar movies. It, it, it gets classed in dark Almodovar, and it's as close as I ever got to an out-and-out horror movie. We are also launching our entire October right now, so when you hear this, which will be Friday, Uh, September 29th, we're actually going to be dropping uh, three new events for the 18th, 19th, and 20th, uh, including uh, one of of our biggest risks, uh, but I I think it's important, and it weirdly uh, dovetails a little bit into the Halloween-a-thon, you'll understand, but it also... um, no one under 18 will be admitted, and uh, you will understand, and that is not because of the horror. Uh, it is because of the sex. Uh, so definitely check out what we're announcing. Uh, and we will be announcing uh, more events coming up. As always, you can find out everything we're doing by going to secretmovieclub.com. You can also uh, just Google Eventbrite and Secret Movie Club to get tickets. If you have any questions, comments, criticisms, you can write us at email us at community at secretmovieclub.com. And as always, 
reviews really help us. So if you're, if you're listening to the pod or you're coming to the events and you don't mind writing us a Yelp review or a Google review or uh, for this podcast, a podcast review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever reviews are, we're very, 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 very grateful. Okay, moving on. Today, I want to talk about parts 9 through 18 of 2017's Twin Peaks The Return. Interestingly, uh, they may not be the last we've heard of Twin Peaks, although no one knows for sure, and I'm not going to go out on a limb and predict anything. There have been a lot of rumblings that David Lynch and Mark Frost are at work on a new project that we all know is Wisteria. It was supposed to start shooting uh, right around the time of the strikes, and as of this recording, the writer's strike has been resolved, and hopefully that means that a template has been set that can then... uh, be the basis for the SAG conversation so the SAG strike can come to a satisfactory conclusion for all the performers. Nevertheless, David Lynch and Mark Frost were supposedly going to start something, and uh, when the actor's strike comes to a resolution, maybe they're going to go back to it. Nobody knows what it is. It's just called Wisteria, which is in reference to a tree that's beautiful to look at but poisonous if you eat it. Uh, or eat its beautiful leaves. So that may be something completely new. It may be an adaptation of one of the many scripts that Mark Frost and David Lynch have written that are non-Twin Peaks uh, based, but it also could be (laughs) Twin Peaks and a continuation of Twin Peaks. We don't know. But until we find out what it is, uh, parts 9 through 18, I view as as a kind of beautiful summation uh, even though it defies being a summation or a conclusion or a finale. So we'll talk about that. So let, let's just dive right into it. Um, parts 9 through 18 of The Return, in so many ways, feel like all of Lynch's lifelong obsessions all coming together. Uh, if each of his movies were a river, it feels like we are now emptying into the ocean. That is David Lynch. Uh, One of the things that's fascinating is the recurrent themes in The Return and specifically the back end of The Return, parts 9 through 18, of electricity, fire. Um, One of the fascinating things is David Lynch has talked many times, numerous times, about his obsession with electricity. He even wrote a script, Ronnie Rocket, that was all about his... Although David Lynch has never been didactic and never would be in describing what electricity means to him, electricity seems to carry a kind of import for Lynch as something that both transmits energy and consciousness and is unwieldy and dangerous and exciting. And certainly in The Return, Dougie or Cooper gets out of the Red Lodge by going through an electrical socket and he becomes Dougie. But doing that also robs him of his ability to be Cooper. Uh, And so what's interesting is in part 15, Dougie electrocutes himself, realizing that somehow electricity is the answer to becoming Cooper again. And he goes into a coma. And then he comes out of that coma in part 16, and he's Cooper. It's interesting to watch parts 9 through 18, because there are also constant shots, this black and white shot of electrical wires that traverse the United States. That is an interesting visual image. Again, hats off to Lynch. The the return has been about America uh, in a much broader sense and macrocosmic sense than Twin Peaks initially. And here, the connection or the visual correlation of 
electrical poles and wires that traverse America mirrors the cross-country nature of the return, both good and bad. One of the things that's funny about the latter parts is getting the feeling that Lynch and Frost are putting everything into the return that they may never get to do. So uh, we have heard that, or I've read, that Dougie comes from a character from their unproduced screenplay, One Saliva Bubble. And when you watch parts 9 through 18, I also wonder if many of the things that Lynch was going to do in his TV series Mulholland Drive, he threw into the return. One of the things is the hitman, Ike the Spike, the little person hitman, who constantly gets thwarted and frustrated in his attempts to kill Cooper Dougie. If you remember in Mulholland Drive, there's the hitman who is there to kill people and everything goes wrong in that really darkly hilarious scene at the beginning where he kills one guy and then accidentally shoots another woman and tries to kill her and there are all these deaths and murders. And Ike the Spike seems in some ways to be a continuation of that. We get Rebecca Del Rio from Mulholland Drive returning to sing one of the return's most beautiful roadhouse closing numbers, No Stars. And this correlates with this uber theme in the return of the decline of America, but not, again, in a didactic sense. Lynch is never easily, thank God, never easily reducible. Whenever you talk about David Lynch, and I always get very wary when people are like, I've got it. I've got the key. I've got the Rosetta Stone. Um, I'm sure they do. I'm sure they have a huge part. In fact, we had a lot of conversations watching The Return. And uh, one of uh, The Return's big fans, Hugo Reeves, who is a librarian who has done our shelves. So hats off to Hugo. Hugo pointed out to me that Judy is probably Sarah Palmer. And while I sensed before I talked to Hugo that uh, Sarah Palmer is the little girl in part eight who swallows the bug, I had never fully put together the correlation uh, as Hugo did that she is Judy and an agent of Judy. And when Hugo said that, it opened up a whole new way of looking at Leland, who is Bob, and Sarah, who is Judy, and they have Laura, and this coming back to the nuclear family and Lynch's obsession from Eraserhead, from even before Eraserhead, grandmother, uh, even his shorts have a kind of obsession with the family and dysfunction within the family and affirming the family, but also acknowledging that Everything good and everything problematic comes out of the family. And this becomes such a succinct metaphor when you think of Leland as Bob and Sarah as Judy and Laura as their child. So I want to thank Hugo for that. Watching The Return again, it's fun to to note or point out, like uh, one of the actors uh, who plays Bobby Briggs' mother was the wife, girlfriend, mother in a racer head. Catherine Coulson, we've talked about before, uh, the log lady. Uh, she all she was Jack Nance's wife at the time of the shooting of Eraserhead, and she also has been there from the beginning uh, with Eraserhead. So the return again is is this like Lynch has his stock company, like John Ford has had his stock company, and one of the joys of watching the return is seeing. Kyle McLaughlin, Laura Dern, even Jack Nance, who had passed away, he makes an appearance. Lynch finds a way, David Bowie, um, Frank DeSilva, he finds a way for the people who have passed to still show up again in The Return. But we also get people who uh, are still alive and uh, most bittersweetly. 
Catherine Coulson is the log lady who was dying when she recorded her scenes and Lynch and she, and she knew that she was dying and they weave death into her scenes and there's a beautiful her final scene is beautiful where she says my log is turning to gold she says you know death is not an end it's a change and then she says hawk I'm dying uh, and death and aging is huge in the return and it's interesting i wonder if the i think lynch was 43 when maybe even younger 41 42 when he started writing the pilot to twin peaks and in the pilot when it came out in 1989 uh, the european pilot there's 25 years later i just wonder if lynch being the master filmmaker he was understood that aging and time and death would eventually, if he were if if he were allowed to live that long, would eventually become things he would understand uh, viscerally and would want to talk about. And he almost sets himself up, or he does set himself up, in the original Twin Peaks season by saying 25 years later, and then 25 years later, The Return comes out. And so Catherine Coulson, being able to do The Log Lady, I believe she died about a week or two after she wrapped her scenes. So... It, 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 you can't, I can't, you can't really talk more about it. It would be disrespectful, but watching them is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And you have to imagine that Coulson bravely, really, you have to really all credit goes to Coulson for being so brave and Lynch, uh, for partnering and collaborating with her on that. Those scenes are, are incredibly powerful. Speaking about the family, um, there are so many parallels in the back end of the return parts nine through 18, uh, where, you know, you have the Palmer family, although they're going to recede for a while until they don't, they come back in part 18. You have the Horn family, uh, and it, it's interesting, Benjamin and his brother Jerry, and then, of course, Benjamin and his children, Audrey and Johnny, um, and then his grandson, Richard. That family ends up being as horribly dysfunctional as the Palmer family was, uh, with just as many horrible, horrible secrets. And in some ways, the Horn family, and then also Bobby and Shelley Briggs, who are now divorced, uh, but they have their daughter Becky, played by Amanda Seyfried, and she is in a dysfunctional marriage with Stephen, and they're trying to do their best with her. And you see... And Shelley is still dating dysfunctional men. She's dating Balthazar Getty, who is clearly like a lead drug runner uh, in the series. So you can see that Shelley's not making great decisions. Her daughter's not making great decisions. Parents can't prevent their children from, you know, living their own lives, nor should they. But you see all of these generationally reoccurring uh, cycles. One of the interesting new uh, elements of the return that wasn't in the original one are these tulpas. Uh, these are these manufactured human beings. And it's interesting. Uh, so Dougie himself is a tulpa. Diane, Laura Dern, turns out to be a tulpa. And Cooper at the end asks the one-armed man to make a new Dougie tulpa so that uh, Janie E., played by Naomi Watts, and Sonny Jim will uh, still remain a family. Again, it's so funny to talk about everything and see all these coalescings of these themes. But the, the manufactured human being, it's different from the doppelganger. The doppelganger is, in some ways, your, 
your dark side, uh, the whatever you are, it's all the characteristics you are not. So I guess if you were dark, your doppelganger could actually be light. Tulpas, on the other hand, seem to be more disposable. But uh, when I went to look up tulpas, it turned out that they're a spiritual concept about things that can be willed into being through spirituality and transcendent consciousness. So it goes to Lynch's maybe lifelong pursuit of transcendental meditation and Vedic uh, spirituality and the Vedas and the Upanishads uh, are the basis of Hinduism. Hinduism is the basis of Buddhism, uh, Hinduism and Catholicism, Christianity. There's a lot of cross currents there. It, it, it's, it's all a thing. Uh, really, we, we should talk briefly about Sarah Palmer, which is that Sarah Palmer, just as Leland was in the first two seasons in the, the movie, Sarah Palmer, Laura Palmer's mother, played by Grace Zabriskie, becomes a huge part of the mythology of the return. And uh, if she is, as I think Hugo says, and I think Hugo's right, if she is Judy, uh, David Lynch playing Gordon Cole says in the return that Judy is really a, a, a simplification of Jow Day, an ancient evil. When he says this, I looked it up, he's not making that out of whole cloth. Jow Day goes back to the very first recorded spiritualities in human history, the, the Babylonians and the Sumerians. This is true. And Jaude, uh, I looked it up, um, in stories from ancient Sumerian mythology dating to at least 3000 BC, Jaude was the female form of the Utuku, an escaped wandering demon that feasted on human suffering. It was said that if the female and male form, known as Baal, which Bob, ever married while on earth, the union would produce an even more malevolent being, hastening the end of the world. Interestingly, though, I have to say, I think, although certainly now that I read that out loud, people could take me on, uh, the being that Jaude and Baal or Judy and Bob uh, create is Laura, and Laura is a good. She's a countervailing, even though she's incredibly flawed. We, you know, we know her from the original series and the movies as a drug addicted, sexually abused through incest, um, sex worker slash prom queen, who embodies all the contradictions and more, all the contradictions in a kind of intense, intense way of uh, just being human and going through life and suffering and striving. That's Laura. It, there continues to be a lot of Kubrick from parts 9 to 18 that's uh, fascinating to watch. Uh, one of the things is from the beginning, they've talked about this convenience store and above the convenience store is where all the transcendent beings had their meeting. And you see Mr. C go above it and above it, and it doesn't make any spatial sense, but above it is a kind of very unsettling motel. And uh, But it doesn't make sense because the motel clearly would be on the ground floor, but we're on the second floor. You have to see it. And you go through these woods and you walk up a staircase, very much like The Shining and the hotel in The Shining. Not to say there's a direct one-to-one, -one, but uh, just as part eight reminds us uh, in some ways of the Stargate sequence and, and its aftermath in 2001, these convenience store scenes reminded me a lot of moving around the hotel in The Shining and how spatially it, it doesn't make sense. There is, uh, watching it just reminded me that just as Stephen King has The Dark Tower, and we've talked about this before, just as William Faulkner has Yokna, Patafwa County in many of his stories and novels, just as Stephen King has The Dark Tower uh, connecting many of his stories and novels, so too 
does Twin Peaks ultimately feel like David Lynch's and Mark Frost's sort of uber, uber story? There's so many great scenes in the back half of uh, The Return, parts 9 to 18. I talked about it in the blog, but I so love in part 11 where Bobby and Shelley are talking to their daughter Becky, and then a gunshot uh, bullet like rips through the Double R Diner, and Bobby goes outside, and there's a family in a car, and the son got a hold of a gun and fired it. And you and again going back to family, and then there's a woman laying on the horn behind them, and Bobby goes to her, and she's screaming, "I've got to go! I've got to go!" It's a very surreal scene. And then this girl rises from the passenger seat and vomits all over the woman, and the woman's like, "I got to get her to her uncle." And it, like so many Lynch's scene, like so many Lynch scenes, when I first saw it, I just reveled in. I thought it was amazing, but I was like, "I, I don't know what it's about, but it makes sense. It works." Uh, but it's crazy. But upon rewatch, and, and I did read this, so I wish I could tell you it's original thought, but I want to credit the, the critics and writers I read. You do realize that all, that entire scene has these rhymes and resonances about family. I mean, Bobby and Shelley are divorced parents counseling a daughter. That rhymes contrasts with Laura, Lee, uh, Sarah, and Leland. Then you go outside and there's a family in the first car. And the son is like the dad. He's gotten the gun and could have caused great violence. But luck and chance, which is another theme in Twin Peaks, saved everybody. Then there's a woman in the next car. And this is a broken family. She appears to be a grandmother or an aunt. Maybe a mother. We don't know. And she's trying to get this girl. We don't know their relationship to her uncle. Uh, and the girl is very, very sick, almost zombie-like. So it, it's it's this thing of like Russian dolls of a family within a family within a family. That's an incredible scene. Then a little later at the end of part 15... Charlene Yee at the Roadhouse has this scene. She only appears in that one scene where she's picked up by these two really strong guys uh, who want her booth. They don't even ask her. They bully her. So she's a woman who's bullied by uh, these men. Um, and then she crawls into where the dancing people are listening to music and she screams, just screams. And end of the, the part 15. And that scream, I always loved that sequence, never knew really what it was about, but again, it felt right. And it was only this last rewatch that I realized, well, the whole show ends on a scream, Laura Palmer's scream. So these primal screams from women are rhyming throughout. And finally, uh, we get to part 17 and part 18. Part 17 is fascinating because it gives us everything uh, in a way that we wanted. Cooper is Cooper again. Everybody converges in Twin Peaks. There's this grand climax battle of good and evil between Bob and all the people that we love from Twin Peaks. Then suddenly everybody is there. They seemingly vanquish Bob. It's almost Lynch saying, it can't, it can't be like this. I'll give it to you, but, <laughs> but this isn't the way the universe is. Uh, but we get it for a moment, even to the point where the eyeless woman who uh, we first met in part three, Cooper met, and then uh, she appears in the real world, and then she's in the jail cell uh, with those great scenes of doubling. There's also all this doubling and dialogue. Uh, you get it with Dougie, who repeats what people say, but somehow when he repeats it, it makes it puts people in a very pensive place where they have realizations. And in the jail cell, there's this drunk who's bleeding, and he just drunkenly repeats what everybody says, including the near animal-like sounds that the woman without eyes makes. And then she's revealed to be the real Judy, or sorry, not the real Judy, the real Diane. Uh, and so Cooper and Diane are reunited, and they kiss. And part 17 plays as a kind of uh, David Lynch's It's a Wonderful Life in the best sense of that word, like the final scene. But then Cooper actually, he's going to move forward. And he has the key. He opens this door. 
where the harmonic sound has been coming. And it's interesting. It's a harmonic sound. Again, two, two notes. It's a sound that could only be made with two notes. And he goes, he goes to the convenience store, above the convenience store. Uh, and it's interesting because then convenience store has a new meaning here. He talks to Philip Jeffries and he goes back to the day that Laura Palmer was killed and he saves her from being killed. And we actually end up at the beginning. But what's interesting is as he's leading Laura away, suddenly she disappears. We hear this scream and uh, part 18 is the, it, like part eight becomes this mind blowing episode where suddenly we are back at the beginning, literally the beginning of the entire series. But in this instance, first we see Cooper and Diane, uh, Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern, who actually dated for four years in real life from Blue Velvet on, which I didn't know. So this has added resonance when you know that and how long they've been in, in uh, Lynch's rap company, his ensemble company. You see uh, Cooper and Diane, uh, they, they go together, they drive. They know that they're going to some kind of alternate dimension. They make love in a motel. Diane actually sees another Diane uh, looking at her. Things get in, in very Lynch style. When they make love, uh, Lynch replays the Platter song, My Prayer, from uh, part eight, explicitly linking in some ways part eight and part 18. Diane covers Cooper's eyes while they make love. And when Cooper wakes up, almost like a dream, when Cooper wakes up, she's gone. And uh, there's a letter signed by a woman named Linda addressing someone named Richard. And this was all set up in the very first parts of the return when the firemen told Cooper, remember Richard and Linda, um, remember this sound, remember um uh, he says uh, for the number 430, which was the number in which they, they cross over into the next dimension. And from here, Cooper, he is Cooper and he knows himself as Cooper, but he acts as both Cooper and Mr. C, which is really the tell that I think, again, Cooper in real life, he contains multitudes. He contains uh, good and conflicting characteristics. And then Cooper... Um, Basically, uh, he goes to Odessa, Texas, to a, a diner called Judy's. Uh, so we know already something's happening. He picks up a woman named Carrie Page, who is Laura Palmer, Cheryl Lee. But now she's Carrie Page. She's a waitress at this diner. And when he goes to pick her up at her house, uh, there's a dead man who shot himself or something's gone wrong in the house. So you already sense that even though Cooper has done all these things, he hasn't been able to really change or save Laura from violence or tragedy or trauma. And in fact, Philip Jeffries tried to warn Cooper before Cooper asked to go to the past. He shows this eight and then the eight, which is also the sign of infinity. And there's a dot on the eight. And when the eight rotates, the dot sort of realigns itself. And it's as if Philip Jeffries is trying to tell Cooper, um, you can change things, but the universe itself, there will always be, it will, it will balance. It'll rejigger there that you won't, you can't actually, erase or correct an evil, uh, it will somehow rebalance itself. But I think that also goes for good. So what happens at the end of part 18 is uh, Cooper and uh, Carrie Page, Laura Palmer, drive from Texas to Washington to Twin Peaks because Cooper wants to take her home. Cooper is trying to write this wrong that he's been trying to write the entire series. They get to Twin Peaks, they get to the Palmer house, but when they walk up to the Palmer house, the Palmers never lived there. There's this woman living there. And uh, the previous tenants, and this is fascinating, they have the names, the Chalfonts 
and uh, what's the other one? I think the Tremons, uh, which are the names of that old woman and that her grandchild that we met in the series in the movie, who really also represent some kind of transcendental characters. So we know that the house is a, a source of, you know, maybe multiple dimensions, multiple realities. Uh, Cooper and Carrie walk down uh, and Cooper says, what year is this? And then Carrie, Laura, looks back at the house. She hears Leland Palmer scream, Laura. She hears her mother. And then she has some kind of presentiment of her other life as Laura Palmer. And she screams, the Laura Palmer scream. And when she screams, she blows out the electricity in the house. Electricity. And then we cut to Laura Palmer whispering a secret to Cooper in the Red Room. But they, we saw that uh, in 90, 91, 92. And Lynch refilms that secret with Kyle MacLachlan and Cheryl Lee. Now their ages in, in 2016, whenever they filmed it 25 years later. On one hand, for all of Cooper's actions, he was not really able to fully erase the trauma, the tragedy, the horror of Laura Palmer and her killing and everything she went through. The universe through Bob and Judy and the evil and that's in the universe uh, rejiggers it so there's new trauma, there's new tragedy, uh, and it's just different. But I think what sometimes people forget when they talk about the ending of Part 18 is that evil Bob and J Judy, they have not been able to vanquish Cooper or Laura. Cooper and Laura are standing. They're still existing. They're still trying to, to right the wrongs. And there's a good that's still fighting the evil. It may be confused. It may be frustrated. But it is still there. And to me... I take away that this is this is existence. The evil doesn't destroy the good, and the good doesn't destroy the evil, and they're in a constant uh, dynamic, and uh, they're they, they, and it's just not reducible. It's not explainable. It can't be simplified. It, even me talking right now can't do anything to that dynamic, and that dynamic somehow Lynch captures amazingly in this final scene. And I, 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 I just nominate to you that 2017, that Twin Peaks The Return is the greatest movie of 2017. I nominate that um, it is one of the greatest features of the 21st century. And ultimately, Twin Peaks as a whole, all 45 hours of it, is one of the greatest cinematic works, uh, combining many different art forms, music, television, cinema, um, you know, painting, everything. Uh, of the 20th and 21st centuries. And I hope that you will watch it. So there you go. That's it. I'll wrap up there. Uh, I uh, Now we are going to post a Secret Movie Club Podcast 115, which is about Tom Cruise, a, a bit of a change from what we normally do. Instead of talking about a movie or movies in a genre, we're going to talk about uh, just a contributor to cinema, the actor Tom Cruise. He He's a mystery. He contains multitudes. As always, go to secretmovieclub.com or Eventbrite to see all of our events. We're launching our Halloween-a-thon, so you'll see tons of new events every day. Thank you guys so much, as always, for taking chances on us on this podcast. Next week, the Secret Movie Club podcast will return. It'll be Secret Movie Club podcast 156. So stay tuned for Secret Movie Club Podcast 156. Thank you guys very much. Have a great week. Uh, and as always, I love you, family. Can I say that she currently runs Sony Studios? Yeah. <laughs> it's Amy Pascal. Look no. at an email. Oh, my God, no. Yeah, and then I'm going to ask you some questions. You ready? What's in the pipeline, Celeste? <laughs> Thank you.
Welcome, Secret Movie Clubbers, to Secret Movie Club Podcast 115. Today, we're deviating from the formula, which is good, much like the Cheers episode that all took place at Kelly's house for Woody's wedding, which turned out to be one of my favorite Cheers episodes of all time. Today, we're actually just talking about an actor, which we have never done before. Connor, you want to give us the title of today's podcast? Today is Tom Cruise, the podcast. Whoa. And because today is a very special episode, we have returning after a year or so, friend of Secret Movie Club and film lover, Celeste Menchaca. Give it up for Celeste. I want to thank my mom and my dad for always believing in me that I could make it back into the podcast. It's good to be here. Good to see these familiar faces. Going to make you proud. Thank you, Celeste. So, and who else is with us today? Hey, not to toot my own horn, but I also feel like a special guest because this feels like the perfect segue as the resident co-host of Talkin' Tom, a Pod Hanks Tom cast. We're talking a different Tom today, and that's Tom Cruise. I'm Daniel Ott. Nice to see everyone. Thank you. I did pitch to you asking your co-host from that podcast to come on to here. Yeah, she has. She could not. I thought it would be really funny. She also was like, I don't know what I would say. I was like, okay. But I'm Connor Lee Cruz, the people's champion. Oh, America. You're wrong. If you know the game, America, and, 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 and Hollywood. Kind of serious slurping down over there. Um, I'm eating Rice Krispies. Okay. Future Connor, tell us what's on the docket this week. There's nothing on the docket this week, Craig, but we still have our Mike Mignola and Bride of Frankenstein event coming up August 13th. We have a recently announced Lost Highway event with editor Mary Sweeney coming up in late September. And a little birdie told me that our fall season is going to start getting announced very soon. So keep your eyes peeled. Yep. And as always, uh, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Go to secretmovieclub.com to find out everything we're doing. That's our hub. Everything from our blogs to our movies to our original productions, anything special we're doing. Whether you're with us in Southern California or anywhere in the world, we want you to be a part of our community of movie lovers and movie makers. And we too would like you to become a friend of Secret Movie Club, like Celeste Menchaca. Today, you would think if we, our first podcast devoted to a performer, Brando, Chaplin, Wells, Meryl Streep, De Niro, Julieta Messina, Grammar, who? Christopher Lambert? Don't forget Christopher Lambert, man. Come on. Hey, man, that, that dude's my hero and he's a legend, man. I know, Edwin. Hunted, Highlander, and two. Pacino, Tilda Swinton, by the way, Willem Dafoe, Jenna Rollins. Lee Majors. We are actually, who? Lee Majors? <laughs> Yeah. Yes, Lee Majors from TV. All hot. But no, we are actually uh, devoting it to Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, the podcast. You know, Tom Cruise has had this amazing odyssey as a celebrity and as a performer. He's now entering, you know, one way to really think about it that's so fascinating is that one of my favorite Scorsese movies is uh, The Color of Money. And in that movie, Paul Newman Paul Newman plays a character he had played in The Hustler from 25 years earlier. He plays a pool shark who takes on a young, cocky Tom Cruise. And this was a formula that's always been very tried and true. An actor who's now moving into their 60s and 70s and pair them up with the hot new actor in their 20s. Well, cut to 2022, which is 36, 37 years after Top Gun and Color of Money. And Tom Cruise just made Top Gun 2 Maverick, where he actually, I think, very self-consciously didn't want quite that vibe of the color of money. And yet there's a whole group of young folks, Miles Teller, who's a you know amazing actor in his own right. And then Tom Cruise is now vaulted into that. Does anyone know Mr. Cruise's age? I think he's 60, 59. 
Almost 60. Yeah, he and Quentin Tarantino, they're all like on the cusp of 60. By the time this comes out, he will be 60. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Tom Cruise. The reason we wanted to choose it is there's a mystery at the heart of Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has consistently made entertaining movies, high quality movies his whole career, as evidenced by he's doing these Mission Impossible movies. And since Mission Impossible 3, really the entire series, barring Mission Impossible 2, which still has like some small pleasures, but every Mission Impossible has been dynamite. That now has been synonymous with if a Mission Impossible is coming out, you know he's going to give you an amazing stunt. He's going to give you a great director. He's going to make sure it's a great script. It's shot on film. And just this year, he did the sequel to Top Gun, which I think, if anything, would have been mediocre. You might have thought like, oh, you know, he he just cash grab. And yet Top Gun 2, Maverick, opened at the Cannes Film Festival blew everybody away. Everyone I'm talking to says this is like a great popcorn movie, a great blockbuster movie. My mom wants me to go see it. My mom's like, we got to go see it. But I know why she wants to go see it. She's like, we got to go see Top Gun 2, Maverick. Let's, it'll be a mom's son. Like, yeah, I mean, and I'll go see I love watching movies with my mom. But she's crazy about this movie. She's probably already seen it. She's not going to wait for me. But the paradox is that Tom Cruise's personal life has always been a source of great mystery for me. I don't want to speak for anyone else. Um, he's been married several times since the mid-80s. He's been a Scientologist. The Church of Scientology just had a very problematic history. And I say this as a Catholic, and the Catholic Church has a very problematic history. So I want to just be very, very clear here that I'm not sitting in a seat of judgment. Although I, I also want to be very upfront that I have great issues with the Church of Scientology as I understand it, and the way that it extorts money, as I understand it, in these weird million-year contracts, and people are out in Hemet, California, like living in basements and stuff. Anyway, and so the contradiction is, and I'm saying this, I speak for myself, no one else on this podcast, these are not anyone else's thoughts, but I wanted to do this podcast because somebody everybody in Hollywood acknowledges as a good person, a consummate professional, somebody who runs an amazing set. And someone I want to just say, I admire Tom Cruise like a lot. And if I get to make movies, God willing, I even have a script where I've written a role that I want to work on with Tom Cruise. I would pitch it to him and I'd say, I just, I put this to the side because I've always wanted to work with you. I want to be very clear about that. I've also lived in great conflict by someone who seems so good hearted on so many levels also, but maybe this is all of us in the end has such a, why the Scientology thing, why he doesn't break with that. And that's not fair to say, because I'm still a practicing Catholic and, you know, child molestation and bearing horrible, horrible things have been part and parcel of the Catholic Church for thousands of years. So again, I'm not sitting in a seat of judgment. It is a cult. As a non-religious person, I do kind of think that all, like most religions are just kind of really old cults uh, with a lot of people in them that have become kind of abstracted over time to the point where they're no longer cults because they no longer have that single personality at the center. It becomes, again, more abstracted. Tom's interesting because he is essentially the third most powerful person in Scientology behind... Elron, who has passed, right? Yes, and number two is David Miscavige, the current... Uh, leader. Tom, I don't necessarily know by most powerful if he's actually doing anything. I actually don't think he is. Uh, I think it's more of like a figurehead role in a way. I mean, he's their like shining example. There's tenets in Dianetics and Scientology that talk about how you can't be sick if you are like good with the tech or 
the rituals or whatever. Like if your if body is clear and your mind is clear of all the things they want to do with you, then you wouldn't get sick or you wouldn't get injured or you wouldn't whatever. And there's part of me that wonders if there's a connection there to why Tom seems to be so willing to risk his life in stunts <laughs> all the time. And I, I like I'm like it's funny, but I think it might be kind of true. Like there's a part of him that if he does really believe in that, which he seems to, he probably does have a feeling of like, well, you know. Like, whatever happens, it's not going to be that bad. You should talk about that because he alone right now, as far as I understand, doing his own stunts is now like part. Of, he's like the Jackie Chan of Hollywood. It's what you get when you go see a Tom Cruise movie. Since Ghost Protocol, the fourth Mission Impossible, they've really, every one they've advertised with like, in this one, he's on the side of a plane and they took off while he's on it. You know, in this one, he held his breath for you know, 10 minutes or whatever. And this one, he did like a real high altitude skydive and really flew a helicopter and did like loop-de-loops in it. That's like, to me, the most impressive thing because I don't really, like a lot of old Tom Cruise, meaning young Tom Cruise, old in the historical sense, but young in terms of his age. I'm not as into his like manic era. I find a little more off-putting when he was younger, but through the Mission Impossible movies, you can see his personas mellowed. And I think part of it is just because of the reaction to what's behind me and Daniel, the like Oprah incident. And that was like kind of the beginning of Tom's like weird relationship with his personality in the press. Certainly when I became aware of it as like a kid, but he's sort of mellowed out. And I think as like an action performer, as an almost like a, like you said, a Jackie Chan or like a Buster Keaton, he can't be topped at the moment. The press cycles right now for like with Top Gun Maverick, there's a very clear decision to be like a very calm and cool personality. Like that's the new Cruise personality. You guys referenced his sh- uh, appearance on Oprah when he was about to marry Katie Holmes, his third wife. A lot has been written about that that actually is really important actually in his defense. Weirdly, the Oprah incident I don't really have an issue with because what I've been told was that in the room, everybody was going crazy. Tom Cruise looked over. What happened was that Tom Cruise appeared to get unsettlingly manic with Oprah Winfrey, jump up on the couch, shout out his love. And Daniel has a famous like thing that people have done where now it looks like he's electrocuting Oprah when he grabs <laughs> her hands. Um, but the story, as I've heard it told, was that Tom Cruise looked at Oprah and said, is ever like, is this for real? Like, what's going on? And Oprah was like, just go with it. Have fun. And actually, this has been confirmed by both sides. So Tom Cruise thought that he was supposed to match the energy in the room and it didn't play on the camera. I don't actually have an issue with the couch thing either he didn't understand the difference between a live room and television and television is a cool medium and so you always have to actually be very cool on tv if you're too hot on tv like film is a hot medium for me tom cruise has always been uh just emblazoned in my head as like an action star i know he's done a lot more nuanced work if you actually look at his filmography but i think being a kid of the 90s the first thing i was aware of him in was jerry Maguire. yeah so i was like oh yeah yeah romantic comedy guy And then as the Mission Impossible movies started growing, he shifted into the action guy for me. I think it wasn't until I was a teenager that I uh, learned of like Top Gun and the court movie with Jack Nicholson. Yeah, for a few good men. Yeah, yeah. With that movie, I was like, oh, he's got range. For me, he's always just been the action guy because I've noticed like many actors over their career, their physicalities will change, their looks will change. Tom Cruise himself, he has always stayed fit. Um, 
and he's always been like in shape for these action movies. He just like 80s onward, like he just never stopped. It hasn't been until like the past 10 or 15 years I've started looking at more of his other work and going, oh, okay. That guy is kind of like very under rated well i wouldn't say that i do definitely think that tom cruise made a very and i think wise and intelligent course correction after the manic period as you called it and i think he just made this decision that it may take me a while but i want people to know me as a professional and that's what i want to be the top line about tom cruise is film professional always delivers a good movie and i think that's probably been a decade-long project what's interesting about that project is that his persona has almost become, and I want to say this the right way, but almost Pariste-like. What's sort of funny when you see his movies now, and I haven't seen Top Gun 2, does he have a a love interest in Maverick? Mm -hmm. So that may break it. But in the Mission Impossible movies, yes, he had a wife, but after Mission Impossible 3, he was her protector, and he didn't really have a relationship with anybody else. And it's been interesting to see him transition into an almost like We were talking about the hero's quest a few podcasts ago, almost to somebody who is helping society but can't be a part of society. And But I guess to your other point, Celeste, when you look at his filmography, this is the guy who did Born on the Fourth of July, who played a crazy role in Magnolia, who, you know, was in A Few Good Men. He played a character in a Robert Redford movie, No One Talks About Lions for Lambs. He was an amazing villain in Collateral, too. And more recently, even though it wasn't a huge hit, he was like a rock star in Rock of Ages. And, you know, you were talking about his romantic comedies. He definitely tr- has done other things, but it definitely seems like he knows in the current environment, I think he just knows the industry, you've got to do IP. So he's doing Mission Impossibles. He's doing Top Guns. He's doing that action movies tom cruise is uh you know was one hell of a guy man was is what do you know edwin i know a lot of things man i've been to his church put down the gun which which i won't go into detail about but you know my first movie i saw by him was a 1981 uh, classic chaps which is a very great movie who plays a soldier candidate and there's this military school and then he goes like a Starts uh, doing uh, dumb things, and uh, next thing you know, when we hit to 1982, he was uh, he was losing it, and we call it losing it. Where he goes down to TJ to pop his cherry with Shelley Long, right? Not a great movie, but hey, it's got a great soundtrack. Then by '83, he was an outsider who starred in The Outsiders. Great movie, and then next thing you know, he had the he had the moves, which he starred in all the right moves. Who plays a football player? Are you gonna go through his whole filmography? <laughs> no, all of them. And, they, and, and next thing you know, by 85, he was some kind of a legend who starred in the movie Legend by Ridley Scott. Well, what, about, what, what about when he engaged in some risky business? I'm not crazy on risky business. That's why I skipped over that one. You take all the right moves over risky business? Yes. You, you plug losing <laughs> it over risky business? Yes, I do. Okay, and, and, and then by 86, he was, uh, you know, he was a maverick in Top Gun, which uh, blew the roof off, man. Next thing you know, he was counting some money. Which is he was in color of money, <laughs> and then he was a bartender in cocktail, and then this is uncredited, but he was in Young Guns. When does the train pull into the station? By naming my top four favorite film by him, which is Rayman, Born Before July, Far and Away, which no one really talks about, and then Collateral, which just by one more Magnolia, which I think that's the greatest performance that man has ever done in his career. That truly shows how damn good of an actor that guy really is. And for Magnolia, he shouldn't have won an Oscar for that performance. Like, honestly, God. He's great in Magnolia. But Rain Man's a great call, too. That's a great performance. That's kind of like him going to the, you know, more serious level. That was the first movie he wasn't being, you know, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, you know, like, Cocktail, Color Money, Top Gun. Just, uh, you know, he's just, just, like, taking it, like, seriously. 
And I love that movie so damn much. It's like one of my personal favorites by him. But out of all the movies he's done, I always go back to Magnolia because he puts everything into that role. He's giving it his all. And I, I wouldn't say Jerry Maguire, but I just can't get over Magnolia, man. And Collateral and Minority Report, those two movies are like dynamite. And Collateral, it's, I'm going to say it, his second greatest performance he's ever done out of his career. And he plays a villain, which is also cool because he never plays a villain. And he's very terrifying in that movie. So shout out to Collateral, man, because he's got some Collateral stuff going on there, you know? And he's also some kind of a last samurai. <laughs> I'm not a big celebrity gossip person. So especially growing up, I was never really in the loop of the real life things of the actors that I liked. Obviously, our cultural awareness because it was all in the early days of the internet, all anyone talked about. I always, I guess, connected people to their roles with this probably ignorant belief that the person that they portray is often the person that you want them to be. Especially as Connor sort of brought up, there has been this reevaluation of himself and his career. And the, the expectation when you go to see one of his pictures is that it's going to be hopefully good, minus, you know, you strike the mummy from the record and 10 years of some pretty solid decision making. He found a real mummy for that movie and <laughs> brought its curse back. That's what people don't understand. Those are not special effects. They didn't advertise it well. There's like the practical effect thing that I think is definitely true of a lot of his, his recent stuff. But it's also just the commitment to... I know that Roger Ebert had a thing about like the Tom Cruise picture, about what the nine steps it took to make a Tom Cruise picture. I think to a degree, you sort of get that still with his stuff that there's a type of movie you're going to get like i was trying to wrap my head around the success of top gun maverick because i think top gun is a pretty good movie it's kind of a weird one that has a with its cult following but everyone's in for maverick like my in-laws were in town and wanted to get out to do a day at the theater in los angeles and maverick universally everyone went we had a big group and universally loved just something about what he's doing as maybe the last Hollywood movie star who sells the thing potentially on name alone. The Mission Impossible series is my favorite thing in what he's done. It's been since I was a kid with the original. I've been revisiting them in preparation for the new one with um, Lisi, who's never seen them. And it's sort of kind of an astounding thing to watch him work through the span of nearly 30 years. The differences that bring where you can clearly see, specifically with Mission Impossible, every director is bringing a very specific thing from their wheelhouse into it. But it still has all of the things that make Tom Cruise part of the package on top of it in a way that feels both collaborative, but also feels like he has an authorship that I think is kind of unique. The thing I think is interesting about Maverick is that it is a movie about the acceptance that this is maybe almost over. I, I've always kind of thought Maverick is the closest to what I imagine real life Tom Cruise is kind of like. This sort of self-assured, slightly full of themselves but in a way where they've kind of proved it in their craft and this understanding that that has to pass on. So they're like, what is the legacy that you leave behind type of thing? There's a lot of lines in the movie that seem almost just pointing at like, this is almost over. I'm getting older in a way that physically I will become limited in what I can do. And so I thought it was sort of an interesting thing that in that Maverick specifically, it's a super, I think one of his stronger performances because it's an emotional performance where he lets himself cry and be vulnerable in a way that he hasn't in a really long time. And I don't know, I think his entire decision-making process with his filmography is fascinating because it really is just constantly shifting to renew himself and get back on top almost. I have always struggled with Tom Cruise because there are aspects of Cruise that I admire deeply. I think that there's this weird thing, and, and I think actors and filmmakers this is unfair, really. And, and actually, I'd say probably even unfair with politicians to an extent. But 
we sort of have this unrealistic expectation and want that people we admire be saints or that they be they just be amazing and like we just want to believe that but that's not who we are as human beings that's not no human being is that way and i think that in our own lives we often have people that we love aspects of them and then other aspects drive us nuts or we're like this is so inspiring to me and then this other aspect of this person i like i don't i don't understand it and we're all like contradictions and so it's unfair to maybe even be conflicted well i, I don't know i i mean i again I think what bothers me is that I feel that Cruz is clearly smart, clearly a professional, which I love, clearly strives for excellence, which is something that's very inspiring to me. Somebody who wants to be great, who really wants greatness, that really moves me, that motivates me. I'm not talking about being rich. I'm not talking about being famous. I'm talking about excellence, being the best at what you do. Not necessarily no one else can be that way, but you just want to be the absolute best that you can be. And you're willing, as Celeste was saying, to work on it, to stay in shape, to give 100%. You never come in and phone it in. I don't know that I've ever felt that Tom Cruise has phoned it in, <laughs> whether you like his performances or not. I never go see a Tom Cruise movie. And I'm like, oh, he's phoning it in. Never felt that. And then I just get frustrated. with Why is somebody who has all those admirable aspects Somebody who won't speak out against something that clearly to me, you know, Tom Cruise holds the power in his hands to potentially break the Church of Scientology. And maybe he's doing it quietly, you know, like Connor was saying, he's not really talking about Scientology at all. So maybe quietly he is distancing himself in a very intelligent way. Maybe he doesn't want it in the headlines. I don't know. I've always kind of thought like it's good for an actor to keep their professional and personal lives very separated just because I think it's more healthy for their, their, their mental health because you're never going to be able to like please anyone and there's like as you said there can be like these expectations of like a certain type of sainthood that the actors are the best qualities of the characters they portray that the audience loves. At the end of the day everybody's going to be very uh, human you know all lives are messy. I actually think it's better for actors to keep those lines to keep those areas very separated from each other and it seems the cruise is doing that now much more so than in the past tom cruise actually represents an old school ideal that's really fading in the industry you know cruise insists on shooting on film Cruz often insists on a minimum of CGI for the most part. He actually, I don't know if anyone remembers, did anyone see his commercial where he begged people not to like interlace their TVs? Oh, he's a part of the group of people that have created filmmaker mode for TVs that just disable all of the junk that changes the way it's experienced. I hate interlace mode. I actually, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but for a long time, if I saw someone's TV had it, I'd just take the remote and I'd change it and I wouldn't tell them. <laughs> oh, that whenever I go home for Christmas and we go to all my different relatives' house, all I do is change their settings. At night while they sleep. <laughs> oh, I do it in front of their face. I want them to know that they've been living in filth. <laughs> well, it's just such a bummer when you know how movies can feel. And when you see that digital thing where it smooths out a tracking shot and it looks literally like it was shot on video, you just you have to tell people, you're like, guys, the movie doesn't look this way. It's not meant to feel this way. So I really admire that Tom Cruise did that. I mean, I think that's actually a really important, admirable technical thing. Other thoughts, guys? A great first person to single out because the real life and the and the fictional actor life, there's such bizarre differences between expectations of who we think this person is and what's true and what's not true and like what's being hidden and what's 
It's the most interesting and potentially problematic and endlessly discussable person in Hollywood to a degree. No one else has this concurring history of unknowns happening at all times than he does at the moment. The more I love a movie or even a franchise, the less I want to know about the people working on it because I don't want it to take away from my enjoyment of the movie. When I go to see movies, I'm like, I'm paying for the product of the movie. What you've just said is the eternal question of separating the art from the artist because a painting hangs in a museum and brings great joy and a lot of people don't know about the life of the painter anymore they just they look at the painting and it's the artwork that has survived and when you talk about a movie and we've talked about this a lot this is the collaboration of 20 to 100 to a thousand people have all worked to make this thing even if tom cruise is the name above the title or the director or the writer Yes, they have an outsized contribution, but their contribution is also a contribution among many other collaborators. And we're in a time where I think this is a, an integral question that we haven't really resolved, you know, because many people will feel that you have to give up an artwork if someone's problematic life comes to the fore. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that with a pre, I haven't made up my mind on that. I'm actually just really trying to wrestle with it because I understand the motivation and the inclination behind it. But at the same time, as you just said, a movie is a movie. And it was made by hundreds of people. Bishop uh, Possible movies are pretty good. <laughs> well, do you guys think his success as like the leading action man has kind of overshadowed his more nuanced performances? Definitely. Yes. But I guess the question I would ask then is, is he no longer taking on those roles or is no one giving money for those roles? Like what's getting greenlit? Well, I, I honestly, I honestly wonder, and again, tying it back to Maverick, I think his time as the leading man in these $150 million productions, he believes is coming to an end. So he's doing these now. And then in five years, once Mission Impossible 8 wraps up, then maybe we'll start to see this like indie and kind of smaller role Tom Cruise appear to like enter his... Late period. And that would be very smart because you're right. You can't. Although Harrison Ford will be Indiana Jones next year at 80. We're like Indiana Bones. <laughs> he's all, he's a skeleton. But I just don't, I, I feel like Tom Cruise, there's a pride thing that Tom Cruise couldn't have someone else do the stunt for him. And he's like, if I can't do it, no one's doing it for me type of thing. Well, I always love Connor's joke. Oh, or well, that he would, one, he's doing these stunts for our sins, but also that he writes into his contract for the Mission Impossible movies or any movie that if he dies doing a stunt, that they should use the footage and write his character's death into the film. But also, as just a quick side note, I think the craziest thing is his production company does these because no one will insure him. You can't make a Mission Impossible movie. He has to put up dollar for dollar the entire budget of the film so does something happen the studio and all of the people that are hired for it would still be paid because he's putting himself at risk to make the movie everyone's like absolutely not we will not insure that so he's like well i'll just insure it myself and i think that's pretty gnarly yeah which says something about him you know i'm sure he's worth a billion dollars or whatever but that you're going to put up 200 million of that billion to do what you want to do, that says something about a person. We hadn't even talked about two of his most famous roles, his cameo. It's not even really a cameo. It's a supporting part in Ben Stiller's Tropic Thunder as studio executive Les Grossman, where he's under like a ton of makeup and he's just playing a hilariously crass, but brilliant, but sort of diabolical bottom line studio exec. One of the few times he's ever played just out-and-out -out comedy, 
And like the biggest omission, his role as Dr. Bill Hartford in Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut, I think it's only an example that he's actually done so much and weirdly taken so many chances and occasionally even just allowed himself to fulfill a director's vision, I think, specifically with Kubrick, where I know Cruz said afterwards he did not enjoy the experience because it was really hard to be Dr. Bill Hartford for, I think it was three or four years of shooting, maybe a little less for, for him but and Nicole Kidman, but a lot, a lot, a lot of shooting. But he did it, and I think that Eyes Wide Shut is one of Kubrick's best films, and I think it's one of Cruz's greatest roles. And it, it was just weird to me that we didn't even broach that. So I don't know what this is to say or to mean other than to really think about someone like Tom Cruise who's actually had so many phases of his career that you can forget. <laughs> I mean, we, we show Eyes Wide Shut every year, and Tropic Thunder still gets talked about and his role in top Tropic Thunder. So I guess this is just a maybe even more to acknowledge that Cruz has done wildly different stuff and taken way more chances than I think people and me, us, when we were talking, even realized. So, Mr. Cruz, if you're a Secret Movie Club podcast listener and uh, you want us to do a part two, we would love to have you. We'd love to talk to you. Come on down. Come on down. Pop culture and final thoughts. Let's grab the most engaged podcaster this today. I vote Edwin Cesar Gomez, who literally has been half obscured in his Zoom frame for the last 44 minutes, leaning against the wall. You're in position for them to, to make you up for the coffin. He, he looks like he's posing for a reclining Buddha. Yeah, you know, I just uh, did a lot of things, you know? No, I don't know. Tell us. Did a lot of travel these past couple months. Put out some flyers at some record stores, movie stores, rental stores. Or a great guy, uh, Michael, runs a seat on 16 millimeter. Who uh, is about to, it's already been done already, but showed uh, double feature 16 millimeter movies at the Frida and at the Whammy Analog Media. I'm running his social media account because kind of have power. So yeah, and uh, yeah, I just uh, saw the world, saw the valley, went all the way to CD Trader. To drop off some flyers. Edwin, all you're doing is describing what you do every single week. <laughs> yeah, but I did stuff. I did stuff. Well, looking forward to seeing Thor Love and Thunder. That franchise has really, like, evolved for me. I watched the first two Thor movies, and I was interested, you know. They hit all the right marks. And then when the Thor Ragnarok came out under the helm of Taika Waititi, it just, like, blew my freaking mind because I never thought I'd see a Thor movie that was so action-packed, but also hilarious, too. I just never thought of Thor as a funny character, but, like, <laughs> it was just a new way of looking at it. It reinvigorated the Thor franchise for me, so. Looking forward to Thor Love and Thunder. Can't come soon enough. It's one of those things where you see a trailer, and then you realize how far away it is, and you're like, well, then, don't show me the trailer now. Well, it'll be out by the time this podcast is out. Yeah, I've got one thing on my mind that I just keep going to see any spare moment I have, and that is RRR, the new fictional, historical, epic, musical, comedy, drama, action spectacle out of India, which I've now learned has sub-branches of its, of its film culture, and it's a Tollywood movie by perhaps the biggest director in Tollywood, SS, I think it's pronounced Rahamuli, and... To put it into context, as I was told later, the two stars of the movie is someone said, imagine the two biggest people in the world. Maybe if Tom Cruise and DiCaprio started a movie together and the biggest director in the world 
whoever you believe that to be, also directed it, this would be that event. It's the biggest movie in uh, India's history. I think it's the most successful movie to a Western audience from India ever. It's three hours and it is unbelievable. If you just Google, go to YouTube and type RRR trailer reactions, people treat it like a new Marvel movie. They treat it like the hammer scene in Endgame. Every theater <laughs> experience I've had, it's incredible. I highly recommend it. It's on um, Netflix in the Hindi language, but the original one is still, it's making rounds through theaters. And if you can see it, it's it's worth it. And there's an intermission if you see it in theaters to relieve your bladder, but it is it is stunning and I keep going and it's, it's magical. And uh, the less you know, the better. If you can avoid a trailer and just take it by word, watch it it'll it does not disappoint so celeste was in town the week before this was recorded it was a lovely trip and one thing i was going to shout out that i've never uh done downtown because i always associate the downtown hollywood stuff is it's like very touristy area but they have this place the hollywood museum down there that's really 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 good i don't know if any of you guys have ever been there i picked up my grandparents from there once it's really cool it's like 15 bucks and they've got all these exhibits they had a really big exhibit about Batman 66, a really big Back to the Future exhibit, a really big Ghostbusters exhibit. They had a lot of queer stuff out for Pride, including, speaking of Tom Cruise, Cruising, Edwin's favorite movie. They had Al Pacino's jacket, which I took a picture of that and sent it to Edwin when I saw it. And it's really cool. A lot of other cool stuff, Planet of the Apes, Star Trek Two, King Kong, a lot of horror stuff. They have the real set, the hallway set from Silence of the Lambs, the prison hallway set. Wow. Yeah, you get to walk through it. It's amazing. Is that right next to the Chinese theater? Uh, yeah, it's in right in that area, which is why I always kind of was like, eh, whatever. Just because like so much of that area, like Madame Tussauds is fun, but it's like 30 bucks. And I would say it's like if the Hollywood Museum was 15 bucks and Madame Tussauds should have been like seven bucks, I would say in terms of like the value level between them it's right in that area and so if you're ever on a trip and you want to go somewhere in that area that's like not just like a touristy thing but an actually like cool thing with cool stuff in it that's interesting like the most interesting is they have all these like displays back to the future had the most where it would be these cabinets with all of these like notes It'd be like a note from like Huey Lewis to like Robert Zemeckis about the song or something and like scripts with like notes in the pages and stuff. What did Huey Lewis wrote? This is a hit. He like gave the lyrics to the guy who did the music. Was it Alan Silvestri? I think yes. from Back to the Future. The Power of Love. There was like his like handwritten lyrics for The Power of Love. Really, really neat. And uh, find me at twitch.tv slash Connor Cruz. I should play D&D Tuesday evenings, twitch.tv slash nerdhalla. I weirdly saw a great documentary about an unmade movie, Henri Georges Clouseau's uh, Inferno. Clouseau did The Wages of Fear. He did uh, Les Diaboliques. He did uh, Quai des Orfevres. He was just this incredible French master suspense filmmaker. And in the 60s, much like Hitchcock did with Psycho, Clouseau wanted to show that he still like he was at the top of his game and he got big money and he was going to make a movie called Inferno, which uh, was going to star Romy Schneider. And it was about a man, a husband who just descends into insanity through jealousy. But they did all these tests that to this day, I was like, these tests are incredible. And they show the footage they shot. They actually started shooting the movie. And then Clouseau was so controlling 
and so out of control, weirdly paradoxically, that he had a heart attack in the middle of the movie and they were running again. And then everyone knew the movie wasn't going to get completed. It was already off the rails. One of the main actors walked off. So it was one of the great unmade films. Clouseau made one movie after that, but he never finished Inferno. And so they showed all this stuff and they even showed a few sequences that had been shot enough that they were able to edit them. You got an idea and they had the script and you watch it and you're like, this thing would have been as great as Psycho. You're like, this move, like literally I would have programmed Psycho Inferno if he had finished Inferno with what he was doing style-wise. But the big lesson also that you got was that he, you know, and listen, you can't control this. He he may have had some mental health issues. He may have had a, a, a nervous breakdown. I was trying to figure that out. The actors, he was driving the actors crazy. So it was also a cautionary tale if you want to make a movie, you know, about not making the perfect the enemy of the good which is something I've always loved to saying I've always loved from politics, which is if you can get the good done, don't torpedo it because you want the perfect. Don't, because you want perfect, drive everybody away and get no result at all. So I watched it, and I, I think maybe because I'm scared that I see aspects of myself in Clouseau, just directors can be very peevish and controlling. It's also simultaneously, I'm sorry the movie was never made. I'm also, uh, it's a cautionary tale. So I recommend that people see it. It was fascinating. And there's so much inspiration if you're a filmmaker from what they were doing. Crazy, crazy stuff with colored lights and rotating lights and glitter and smoke and water. And you just look at it and you're like, this is trippy as hell in a great, great way. There you go. All right. Can we all give it up for Celeste Menchaca? Hey, thank you for having me. For back. Celeste, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for putting up with us. Yeah, Craig. Or putting up with me. It's wonderful to have you, Celeste. Wonderful to have everybody. Next week, you get Edwin Caesar Gomez and me rematching. But uh, interestingly, the conversation again turned out, We Edwin and I have done two Defend This movies. One of them, I think, delivers the goods in terms of fireworks. The other one I really loved, but it turned into a really interesting conversation about Rio Bravo and Assault on Precinct 13. And that's the one you're going to hear uh, next week because Edwin loves Assault on Precinct 13, John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. And of course, John Carpenter took that template, the Rio Bravo template, and made The Thing. He made The Fog. He made Prince of Darkness. He made a bunch of movies that are people in a contained space dealing with an outside threat. But Edwin does not like Rio Bravo at all. And my argument was that if there had been no Rio Bravo, there would be no Assault on Precinct 13. So we have a big conversation conversation about how much do you have to still acknowledge and respect what inspired the thing you love, Uh, which I think is an interesting conversation because it can actually get into really complicated territory. So that is next week. Defend this movie. And in the meantime, you can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. You can get tickets at Eventbrite at secretmovieclub.com. You can write us a community at secretmovieclub.com. This podcast was edited by Connor Lloyd Cruz. All right, guys, have a great week. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Celeste. Bye. I love you, Martha. Bye-bye. Pammy, Craig. Amityville 3 in 3D? The third dimension in terror? I actually just found that, it, and you can thank Daniel for this. You know, uh, we can do 3D on our Barco. Then you should... F- can do it yeah well i just realized that when i was going through all the aspect ratios and i was like oh we can do we could do avatar <laughs> if we and want not, to. Not, not, not the avatar guess what we could do oh wait, wait you mean the digital projector yes oh never mind never mind never mind nothing says back at the movies like three people watching <laughs> <Amityville> 3d <laughs>